Welcome to episode 15 of Flying Podcast. Over the last few weeks I've had uh, several requests from listeners asking me to get a commercial pilot on the podcast. One young listener called Christopher Frost asked me specifically whether I could find out uh, what an airline captain's day involves. Chris is actually starting out on his uh, flying career down at Blackbush I believe. Uh, so good luck to him with his PPL training and thanks for the suggestion. So here's my interview with the airline captain as requested. Uh, I'm with Guy Cowper, a captain with uh, the UK's largest charter airline. Good afternoon, Guy. Good afternoon, Steve. Uh, Guy, what was your route into flying commercially? Uh, commercially, uh, it was a sort of progression from having a PPL. Uh, I got a PPL when I was 21. At the time, I was a packaging salesman and um, gradually wanted to um, get into commercial flying. I realised that my career at selling cardboard boxes was not going anywhere. Uh, I was in a bit of a rut and uh, kept getting flight international. They kept talking about pilot shortages and I thought, well, I better just gear myself up for this. So uh, I think at the time you had to have 100 hours P1, that's in command time, to then become a flying instructor. So I thought that's the best route because it's a different system in those days. We're talking 25, 30 years ago. Um, to get into commercial flying, you had to have 700 hours in your logbook. So I then built up hours while still working in packaging and saved up money and uh, did that doing various things, taking my friends flying out of Chester, doing aerobatics in the Beagle Pup, which was very enjoyable, and then got the hours, did the instructor course with um, Dave Williams, who is uh, sadly passed away now, but a really nice bloke. He taught me the instructor course, and luckily, no sooner was the ink dry on that ticket, I got a job with Cab Air at Denham, flying uh, the AA5 Tiger and Slingsby's, and uh, did the 700 hours, and then did the exams and got the CPL. Um, in fact, it was a, I think I did the ATPL uh, with a frozen ATPL, which was then um, a CPL initially issued. And then again, the windows opportunity opened straight into a turboprop job after the instructor job. Uh, did that for six months with Birmingham Executive. And then in 1987, got into the airlines flying um, 737. Excellent. Uh, Nowadays, the system is slightly different. There's a lot more sort of hoops you have to jump through to get a, a seat in an airline. Yes, it is different. Um, nowadays, in, when I did it, it was uh, the other way around. You had to have, um, uh, you could instruct without a CPL, um, and you had to have 700 hours minimum. Now you can do an approved course, which is, I think, 200 hours, but it, with somebody like Oxford Air Training or um, CTC down in uh, Southampton or Her there's a good academy in Jerez in Spain but you've got to fork out about 70 to 80 thousand pounds but that will give you a frozen uh, transport pilot license and provided you come up to the right standard and you are past the interview you'll get a job with an airline uh, with the correct qualifications and end up as a second officer in the right hand seat of, of an airliner or turboprop. Right, and that's known as the integrated route. That's correct. Where everything is off the shelf in, in one particular place. Yes. The yeah. alternative nowadays is modular, where you go and do your exams at one place, yes. take your flying training somewhere else, yes, indeed. shop around and buy the bits as you require. That's right, yeah. Um, in fact, I, did, I recently did an um, upgrade on, the, on a rotary licence and I used a company called Bristol Ground School, who are excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, there are various schools who will do the writtens. Um, you can, you can, uh, you've still got to go and do the flying as well. So, yeah, you can pick and choose and put it all, and do that and maybe... I think there might be some savings there, but um, a lot of the guys who, have, who I've met who have come into it have just 
um, fought down to 75,000 and gone to an approved school. And we've had people in from some of these schools, and they're very, very good. You can tell that they've had the good training. So sometimes spending that little bit extra and going to a recognised academy is beneficial. Uh, you say you then got a right-hand seat, first of all, with a, a, a 737, did you say? Yeah, that was with, with the same company I'm with now. We, um, we were operating 737s, um, 200 series, uh, on European charter, and then we were the first airline. I did that for about two years, and then we were the first UK airline to bring in the Boeing 767, um, which was great, and there was an opportunity to go on that, and I thought, well, this is, this is a new piece of kit, um, count me in. And that was terrific because it was um, we started doing long haul and we started pioneering the cheap flights to Australia. And before I knew it, I was flying in a brand new aircraft, 60 million pounds, 767. With you know, I was single at the time with 10 beautiful girls down the back, and um, you know, staying in the most amazing hotels. And I almost had to pinch myself that it was it was real. It was terrific, it really was. Yeah, and a beautiful aircraft. And then we got the 757. So I've been flying those two types um, all the time now, and probably. Well, I've got about, um, I don't know how many hours on tight now, but total time is about 15,000 hours now. Yeah. Do you now concentrate on flying one aircraft all the time, or do you, are you capable of swapping from one to the other on a daily basis? Yeah, we're dual rated on both, because uh, basically, you know, the dashboards are the same, if you like. The speeds yeah. are slightly different, but it's the same. A couple of um, differences in, in hydraulics, etc., uh, flight controls and whatever, but we're, we're taught all those. Uh, but if you were to sit in, in it, um, the, the layout is exactly the same for both aircraft uh, and they've got slightly different characteristics I mean the 767-300 is, is, is a lovely aircraft to fly the 75 is a slippery beast and it's probably, you know, it's good below 10,000 feet then it starts to run out of steam a bit uh, after that but we all have our own favourites mm -hmm. but um, the, the, there's uh, really, you can fly you never know from one day to the next which one you're going to fly Okay, and once you've got your seat in the right hand, you're what, the first officer? Yeah, um, you start off as a second officer, two stripes, uh, most likely. You know, generally in, 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 the, uh, in the industry, turboprop first officer, two stripes, um, jet first officer, three stripes. But, you know, we start off in our company uh, with second officers and they get to 1,500 hours when their ATPL, which they've normally done the exams for, becomes unfrozen. Mm -hmm and then they get promoted to first officer, and that's quite a big pay rise as well, something of the region of about £10,000 for, for the lads that, and girls that have done that. And, of course, we've got a lot of girls who fly for us as well, which is great. Yeah. And um, so that's, yeah, that's the way forward. I mean, if you're doing the exams, you may as well do the ATPL exams and have it frozen waiting for those 1,500 hours rather than do a CPL and go back and do more exams. You know, that's what most people do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and how do you get the, uh, the left-hand captain's seat? That is done, obviously, um, on sort of, um, well, I could say dead man's shoes, really, but when people retire, everything's done in seniority. So, I mean, I had to wait 13 years to get a command, which is a long time. Yeah. Um, and you just got to, you know, bide your time. Um, other people who went to other airlines that grew quicker got commands quicker, but then they've gone bust since then. So, you know, there's, you just have to sit and wait and to get your experience up. Uh, the minimum experience when I first joined for a captain was 4,000 hours. They've dropped that down to 3,000 hours. That was a few years ago when we were expanding rapidly and we needed more people, so they kind of lowered their sights a bit there. Um, but basically, assuming that you've got good, good marks in your simulator and your line checks, they'll look at that and they'll be, in our company, there's a command review board who will look at people and say, yeah, he's okay, uh, put him on the pile, and then when the time comes, you get a command course, and assuming that you pass that, 
you're in. Excellent. Uh, do you just fly short haul at the moment? I do a mixture of uh, European flights and long haul, um, the, uh, which is nice. It's probably the best job going in flying for a variety because uh, you know you can fly to... The other day I did a quick flight to uh, Reyes, west of Barcelona, and Alicante. Uh, before that, I'd gone to Cancun. Didn't, luckily, didn't get the swine flu. Um, so, yeah, we fly anywhere where there's a beach, and so we go all over the world, and um, we uh, find that at the moment we're doing quite a lot of long haul because we're taking passengers further afield outside the Eurozone. So uh, it's nice to have that variety. Uh, on a daily basis, do you know where you're going before you arrive at the airport? Yeah, you get issued a roster which comes out uh, pretty much a month in advance, so you know roughly four weeks ahead of time what you're doing. I think June's roster should be out possibly tonight, and you can log on at home to the company computer and print it off, mm -hmm. which is great. So you can plan your life around that, which is great. And um, uh, it, you don't, you can bid for trips if you wish. I can't be bothered to. I just take what comes really, and I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. Uh, and so you could actually be away any given day, any hour, weekends, Christmas Day? Absolutely, yes. I think I've, I've probably worked in 22 years, I've worked about 14 or 15 Christmases, yeah. Um, the, you just have to take that, you know, that's the, the, the airline just has to carry on as a 24-7 operation. Uh, and every, yeah, every, I've been up flying every hour of the 24 cycle. But so most of the time it's sort of, you're either on... They are quite sympathetic in the rostering. They'll, they'll, they won't mix. They can't mix it too much because they'll give you a, a, um, a series of early flights. Then they wouldn't suddenly bang in a late flight because they know that's that's not good for rest. I mean, they have to be seen by the CAA to roster um, sensibly, should we say? And there are a limit to the number of hours you can fly in a in a week, is it, or in a month? A month is ninety hours actual stick time. Um, that's flying time. That that's a lot of work. You certainly know it when you've done ninety hours. Yeah. You, you have duty time on top of that, but uh, logging 90 is the maximum per month. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and on short haul, two crew, long haul, three? Two crew, uh, most flights. If it's a particularly long, uh, long haul flight, which would, um, for instance, to, again, to mention Mexico, that's, that can be a 10.5-hour flight. And if you're doing a short stay over, the, you can get uh, an extra hour's duty time by having three pilots. So... Uh, then you will uh, obviously split the duty into three on the flight, which is quite nice. So you can go back and have a rest for three hours, and it does make a difference. That yeah. Are there engineers anymore? Or not? Uh, the, obviously, on the ground, there are not on our aircraft, um, and um, the you have a thing called ICAS, which is Engine Indication Crew Alerting System. That's the engineer, basically, an electronic one. Uh, there's still the old panel behind the two pilot seats, but there's not much on that panel. Um, but no, and no flight engineers anymore. Roughly how much time do you reckon you spend away from home in a given month? Uh, it does vary um, because uh, if you've got some long hauls in the, uh, your roster, then you could be away for uh, uh, on a bullet, which is a very short flight. So you'd report, do the flight, say, to Florida, uh, have 20 hours off and fly back through the night. Uh, so you'd only be away for you know two nights, but other times you can be away for a week. Uh, in fact, there, there's also, um, we have a, a trip that's uh, for VIP um, and, and very uh, wealthy customers, which is a round-the-world trip on a 757, you're away for 28 days. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it can vary. Yeah, and also we do um, uh, work on the Hajj pilgrimage, and that entails uh, 28 days away, and then you have about two weeks off and do another 28 days away out in Indonesia. So, you know, it can vary a lot, yeah.
sort of many and varied flight types that you have to do, which sounds good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's really good because I, I reckon I got the best job in uh, commercial flying because of that variety. Uh, a variety of airports, the roster is, is very, very uh, challenging and interesting. Uh, so there's no, no time to get bored, really. But jet lag is your worst enemy? Jet lag, I do find, uh, I'm 52 now, so I do find uh, it does um, get me a bit. Um, my wife says I get a bit grumpy when I come home, you know. So you've got to really plan that. I mean, you come back and sometimes you think, well, you've landed at six in the morning. Do I, and the kids are going to school, do I stay up all day or do I go to bed and have a few hours kip or whatever? You have to sort of kid your poor old body into getting back into shape. So I often plan things when I come home and when I actually try and do them, I'm just too tired to do them, you know. So you've got to give yourself a couple of days to get over it, yeah. I remember one time coming into an airport and I could tell that the plane was pretty heavy and just as it came in over the perimeter fence the wing dipped and I thought it was going to hit the grass and the pilot thumped it down to the ground there was a big crosswind yes do you ever have sort of landings like that where you sort of at the end of it think thank god I got well, it on the ground I mean, yeah I mean uh, first of all um a good Boeing landing you, you're taught to plant it on the thousand foot point in the runway because if you're pussyfooting around trying to do a, a nice smooth slick landing doing 145 miles an hour using up a lot of tarmac our job is to put it down on the ground at the correct place so that the aircraft has plenty of opportunities to stop. Yep. Having said that also, I mean, if you're, it is very challenging landing in a strong crosswind. And uh, on the 767, 757, the crosswind limit is 40 knots, which is, you imagine a 40-knot day, it's pretty blustery. <laughs> yes. So you're rock and rolling all the way down the approach. You know, we use the crab technique. And uh, I, I think I did a 40-knot crosswind a few years back at Birmingham. And... Um, Bearing in mind that the autopilot can only cope with a maximum of 25 knots, so the pilots have to fly the, the approach mm -hmm. uh, or, the, or the landing. And um, the two aircraft in front of me had gone around. I thought, well, this would be a bit fun. <laughs> uh, and I managed to, to put it on the deck, and uh, that was quite, quite challenging, to say the least. Yeah, it, that's probably, um, you know, we have all sorts of weather to deal with, but uh, when it's very, very windy, that's when you have to work pretty hard. Yeah, I didn't realise you had to do that above 25 knots. That's fascinating. Well, that's right. I think, you know, the, the, at least we're irreplaceable in that respect, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> when it's windy, they need Absolutely, you. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, you hear people on long-haul flights, you know, there's this uh, urban myth that you know, the pilot takes off, switch on the autopilot, and then you sit there for many hours and get really bored. Is, is that the case, or are you working all the time? Uh, in terms of, well, first of all, in terms of the autopilot, um, it's fantastic. If you're leaving Manchester on a busy day, it's a good idea to put the autopilot in. The earliest on takeoff that we can put it in is 500 feet um, because there's no autopilot yet that will cope with an engine failure at um, decision speed and fly away. We have to do that. But uh, if you're in a busy air traffic environment like Manchester on a busy morning, it's best advised to put the autopilot in because then the two crew can monitor the... You're monitoring a machine, basically. That's what you're doing. You're operating a big machine. You're monitoring it in a very busy environment. So that is a good idea to have the autopilot in because it then gives you much more capacity to, to, ha to deal with what's going on. However, if you're leaving, I don't know, Alicante on a quiet afternoon, uh, I've flown it, hand flown up to 35,000 feet, you know, mm -hmm. with the flight directors off purely, you know, reverting to manual. And it's good to do that occasionally because we all like to fly uh, and also in the descent as well. So uh, it, there's always a time and a place, whether you hand fly or, or, or automatics, but the company encourages us to use the automatics as much as possible. But we do like to keep our skills on a nice day, yeah. you know, hand fly. And most of the landings are um, manual landings. You know, we can do automatic landings, provided that the uh, ILS, you know, the aids at the airfield are good. Yeah. We can do auto lands, and we are encouraged to do 
at least one of those every six months, um, plus the simulator, to you know reassert our faith in the aircraft, so that when we come to do it for real in the fog, uh, we're happy with what's going to happen. And it can put itself on the ground absolutely beautifully. Yeah, it's amazing. And when you do it for real, in uh, we're on zero decision height, 75 meters visibility. Uh, you come over the fence and just see a few lights go underneath, thrust levers come back. You know, it's a really terrific hope tool. You, hope you're not at Woodford. Not, no, I think we've, no, that would be a bit tricky, yeah, but uh, you do have to have the correct airfields for that, for categories of, and the hardest bit is actually taxing the aircraft back to stand, that's the hardest bit, you can't, you can't see where you're going, you can see one light in front of you, and, um, you know, you've got to have your, your, your co-pilot with the map out, make sure you don't go up the wrong taxiway as well, it'd be a bit embarrassing. Uh, speaking about ILSs, are there any airfields, interesting air, airports that you go to that don't have ILS where you have to land manually? Yeah, well, there's lots. There's lots. Most you see the, the um, ILS is absolute luxury. You, if you're doing a, a VOR only approach, you know, or an NDB non precision approaches, um, there are lots of traps in those. You know, because you've got no glide path guidance, so you have to be very, very careful. You'd be, you'd be working on a on a distance laterally. You're probably okay on it, but you've got to be very careful with with some of these. And there's been lots of accidents uh, associated with non precision approaches. So there are places we go to where we have to be very, very careful, and um, you know, people have been caught out. A lot of the time, you know, somewhere like Puerto Plata in the Dominican, you can come down um, the VOR and then break off for a visual circuit to land, you know, and you're just flying the circuit using timings, but you, your eyeball to look out the window like you would do in a Cessna 150. So, you know, it's, um, it's nice to do that sometimes. Uh, and a typical day or a typical flight, you arrive at the airport, what's yeah. your routine having, having arrived, park your car? Well, a typical day, obviously, um, <coughs> no boozing the night before, you know, make sure you're fresh and well-rested, um, get up and um, and the drive to work, you, or you've probably even thought about, you know, how to look on the weather beforehand. I mean, I, you know, we've all got the internet and whatever, and have a quick, I wonder what the day's going to be like tomorrow, or even on the telly, get a rough idea of the day, drive into work, uh, you know, what, what runway is on today, or today we're on 05, looking out the window, you know, mm -hmm. there's an emergency turn on that, so you're sort of sussing it out already. Yep. Sometimes you think, oh, I wonder if the engine's going to fail today. You know, you, you, you know, you should prepare yourself. And then you go into the crew room, and um, obviously, as you get a captain, a bit lazy. The keen first officer's usually in before you. Um, and we have to put all the paperwork off on computers. We all get laptops, etc., which is great. And you get the flight plan uh, from uh, group operations who will, who will do that. But first things, you, you introduce yourself to whoever you're flying with. And, uh, I mean, we've got 900 pilots, so, you know, you may never have met this bloke before in your life. So there's a quick bit of chat, and what you're doing in the chat is getting to know each other. Uh, if it's a new guy, you know, where are you from, how much, what have you been up to, and what sort of experience level you're gauging as a captain, what kind of experience level he, he's at, mm -hmm. particularly when we had a lot of new guys come in a few years ago. Uh, and, um, you know, just, just putting them at their ease, go and have a low, say hello to the cabin crew as well, because they're all part of the team. Uh, sometimes they've already gone down to the aircraft, though, because they report half an hour earlier than us. So we report an hour before the flight, in theory, but most of us get there about an hour and 15 because it does take longer to get the paperwork out of the computer. In the old days, it was quicker when there was no computer. <laughs> but um, So basically, having had a bit, bit of chat with, the, with your, uh, with your uh, first officer or second officer, um, we've got the paperwork comes from a flight planning system which looks at the most favourable routing and the most favorable winds on that day so let's say hypothetically you're going down to somewhere in Spain and um, they might send you further west or east to pick up 
uh, more of a tailwind or to keep out of more of a headwind. So they do look at it very cleverly. And it's amazing how accurate the forecasting is these days because you'll get a flight plan and even across the Atlantic of, let's say, a flight to Florida be 8 hours 32 minutes and you land and look at it, it's been 8 hours 32 minutes. You know, unbelievably accurate. So on that flight plan, uh, first of all, you'll get you'll print off the flight plan, which has the route and, all, and the fuel required, and you also have a package of weather and a package of NOTAMs, which is notice to airmen. So you generally pick up the flight plan first, have a look at the flight time, check it's the right aircraft, <coughs> um, and all the details are pertinent to that day. It'll have a fuel figure, which is the, the fuel burn from Manchester to Palmer, say. There'll be a 3% contingency on top of that, which is basically um, if the forecast wind isn't, as it says, there's a little bit of buffer in there or whatever. It's a contingency, basically. Mm -hmm. um, half an hour's holding, enough to make an approach uh, and a go-around and fly to your alternate, and then taxi fuel, and it'll come up with a, a specific figure. So then you'll look at that figure, and you'll check that the weight of the aircraft predicted uh, you'll ring up service air and say, have they all checked in yet? What weight have you got on the computer? Oh, yeah, have a look at it, make sure it's pretty close to what uh, what it says there because, of course, it, it does affect the fuel burn, and we're very conscious to save as much fuel as we can. So um, you try and get the most accurate information before you base your decision on how much fuel to take. And then, of course, you've got to check that the weather is suitable um, for your destination um, what are we going to encounter en route? Are there any jet streams? Are there, is the turbulence forecast? Do we need to tell the cabin crew about that? Um, is the wind um, predicted to be what they say it is on the flight plan? I might, it might um, you know, affect me more adversely, so I'll take some more fuel. Um, but that, So you're sussing out the weather. Let's say it's a nice day. There's no problems down there. You look at the NOTAMs. There's nothing to affect us. So the ILS is working. They're on runway 24 left at Palm. Well, we know that. That's great. So we will be quite happy to take what the company say, which is minimum fuel. Uh, they don't insist on that. Um, fuel is a massive cost for the airline, so we're always trying to keep that down. Uh, but if there's something we're not comfortable about and we think we can take more because there's thunderstorm forecast or you know we may have to dodge thunderstorm cells on the way down or it's going to be very windy, we might have to go around, we can take as much fuel as we like. Whatever, we're paid to feel comfortable, mm -hmm. you know, because the worst thing is to be sat there running out of fuel you know, and, and we're not paid to do that, and we're, we're a commercial operation. So 90% of the time we'll take what the company wants us to take, uh, but if you take more fuel, no one's going to criticise you, but it is very important, obviously, we are all part of the company to be commercially aware and try and keep that fuel burn down to as, as little as we can. Yep. So if you're taking, for every extra tonne on a long-haul flight, you might add on, you'll burn 200 kilos carrying that extra tonne. So, you know, you can almost take... It almost becomes self-defeating if you load up too much fuel. You're just burning so much to carry it. Yeah. There are other occasions where we will tank a fuel, where if it's very expensive down somewhere down route, we'll actually take extra fuel in the aircraft so we land with more, mm -hmm. so we're not juicing up as much when we get down there. Okay. Yeah. And do you actually physically walk around the aircraft yourself, or do you rely on someone yeah. else checking yeah, it yeah. over? I should have said actually. What we what we'll do is, having decided on the weather, I'll say to the the first officer which way would you like to fly the leg. And generally, they'll fly out because they're wanting to get experience different airfields. So uh, he then becomes PF, which is pilot flying. I'm PNF, which is pilot not flying. So we've decided on the fuel figure. We've rung it through to the agents, who then will prepare the load sheet. We can then leave the crew room and uh, wander down to the aircraft. And I'll, having got through security, of course, um, which can be fun. Um, <laughs> so we get to the aircraft, and I'll put my high-vis jacket on and go out onto the ramp, and I'll walk around the aircraft 
and there's a specific, um, you know, everything is standardised. There's a specific way of walking around the aircraft and checking everything. Just like your Cessna 172. Absolutely, you could... yes. We've all, there's a checklist, uh, which when you first join, you'll learn it, but we all know it off by heart. You know, we go around and, and uh, check everything. Um, while I'm doing that on the walk around, um, the PF will be putting the route into the flight management computer and he'll be doing his scan of all the instruments and getting everything set up and initialising the inertial navigation system, etc. So it only takes me about five minutes to do the walk around. I'll come up onto the flight deck, say hello to the cabin crew. If I haven't seen them, we'll go wander down the back and introduce ourselves because they like to know who's in charge, you know. Do you ever pick anything up on the walk around? You know, when you walk oh, yeah, up? yeah. I mean, Such there's all sorts of things can go on. I mean, we, there's a lot of... For instance, vehicles can run into the aircraft. You get a lot of damage from vehicles on the ramp, things like that. I remember sitting on an aircraft once, there was an almighty great jolt, and uh, a baggage bloke had uh, driven off with the steps, and then he'd been called back and he'd forgotten it, the steps were still attached and driven into the trailing edge of the wing. I think he did about a million pounds worth of damage. And, of course, we, we didn't know whether he'd ruptured the fuel tanks or anything. I mean, it was, it was horrendous. So there's an awful lot of going on out there. You know, it's a busy place, and you do notice things, yeah, yeah. So the the engineer does the walk around as well, but you know, as I say, I've never got in an aircraft in my life that I haven't done a walk around first. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's 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 me then in the flight deck now, and uh, the routing's in. We go. We then the pilot flying will do his scan of instruments. I'll scan my instruments. We'll check our oxygen masks work, and uh, then he will call for the uh, pre-flight checklist, which I will read to him. Now, the amazing thing about flying in an airline is uh, a thing called standard operating procedures. And uh, that means that you and I could meet and um, fly that aircraft safely, having never met before, because there are things laid down that we all know which other, each other's duties and what we're going to say and when we're going to say it, you know, which is fantastic. And uh, that is such a good safety tool. So uh, I will do... I'm PNF now. I'll read the checklist for him. So at this point, passengers are getting on. Cabin crew come and say, would you like a cup of tea? Yes, please. You know, uh, And um, then the handling agent will come and say, uh, that's it, sir, they're all on board. And uh, we'll pass them the load sheet that we've confirmed. What we've done at this point, we've got the final takeoff weight. We've put the, um, the figures of the, the, the empty weight of the aircraft into the flight management computer. And that's come up with the takeoff weight because it knows the, how much fuel's in. We verify that. And then we put that, we open our little laptops, which we've got, and we've got a, a takeoff performance, um, which basically you, you punch in the runway in use, the weather conditions, the temperature, um, and whether the runway is wet or dry or whatever, and what part of the runway you, you're taking off from. And uh, press a button, it comes up with the takeoff speeds, which is very good. In the old days, we had to get books out and so on. And this also is allied, I think, to the maintenance, because if we use this system, Rolls-Royce and people will give us uh, longer uh, life on our engines. Um, so we come up with the, the V1, the V2 and the VR speeds, uh, which we'll bug up on the airspeed indicator. And uh, that will be written on the flight log as well, and it will give us the flap setting for takeoff. Generally, fl f uh, flap 5, you've got flap 1, flap 5, you know, the different stages of flap. Uh, and it will also give us a, um, a setting for the thrust reference. So you can, we don't go off at full power unless we absolutely have to, because we want to save the engines. So we have D-rated power. The D-rate one's about, I think it's about 12% off full power, and D-rate two's about 17%, and then we can tweak it a bit more. So a lot of the time going to Spain, you could be on D-rate two, so you, you know, you're way off full power. 
and you're still getting off the ground, but this is to help save the engine life. Yep. So we'll come up with those figures, bug it all up on the airspeed indicator, get the clearance from air traffic, um, and it will be a specific standard instrument departure. Uh, and then we'll then have a briefing together. So whoever pilot flying will say, would you like a brief? Yes, please. And then we'll talk about how we're going to get out of the runway. Are there any dangerous hot spots? Yeah, which there are. There's quite a few corners at Manchester where vehicles can cut across you and you've got to cross an active runway to get to uh, the other runway. So there's a lot of areas where that, you know, they're called runway hotspots now and we, we discuss those. And then we discuss the departure, how we're going to fly the departure. If we have an emergency, what are we going to do? Um, and uh, so that's the briefing. And then, then at that point, we're ready to go. So we turn on all the hydraulics, turn on the fuel pumps, set the trim, uh, and then another checklist. And that is, that's us ready to go from stand. Okay, that's fine. Um, training. Uh, I presume you, you have regular training. Is all your training on a simulator? Or do you like to do flights? Um, the recurrent training is on the simulator. Um, and you, you have um, basically every six months you have your... Uh, your OPC, LPC checks, um, we call them our base checks, and you also have a, a once a year line check, which is basically observed on a line flight, a typical flight with passengers, where the training captain will sit in the uh, jump seat and observe you and uh, make sure you're doing the job as it should be done. But the most interesting bit is in the simulator, which is the most incredible training tool ever devised because it's so realistic, it's unbelievable. And if you ever get the chance to go in one, you must, you know, it's fantastic. Um, because you're flying, there's no, you know, there's no doubt about it. And um, what do, they, do they really push you in the simulator? Um, well, that's a funny thing. I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they compile on. It's, training has very much changed over the years. It's much more, um, you know, before it was like ticking the boxes for what the CA wanted to see and so on. And yeah, you could pile people on with ridiculous amounts, but that doesn't get the best out of a person. It's better to to look at what does that person need and focus on those things. We have to obviously do things that the CA want to see, which is the you know the engine failure at, dis at critical speed on takeoff, um, single engine hand flown ILS approach with a go around, etc. They have to be done for the CAA. But outside of that, we can then incorporate our own training uh, and use the simulator for that. I mean, for instance, I've just done my base check, and uh, we took off in a scenario from Glasgow to Parma. And uh, one generator was US on the ground, so we had to use the auxiliary power unit, which is basically a jet engine in the tail, which powers the uh, electronics uh, and the air conditioning on the ground. But we had that, so you leave that on for the flight to power the other source of, uh, you're going to have two sources of electrical power. Well, this thing caught fire, you see, at about 14,000 feet. So they think, oh, hang on, you're sitting there waiting, what's going to happen? <laughs> Next minute, the fire bell goes, APU fire. Okay, yeah, so APU fire um, checklist, please. So out comes the checklist, and we fire the bottle into into the APU, and the fire doesn't go out. So oh, this is no good. So you, you've got to organise yourselves. And so, uh, you know, I, I put the Mayday app. First officer then fires the next bottle to try and get the fire out. Got to talk to the cabin crew, get all the information. Yeah, we've got, and it's all done. You know, the chap in the sim will pretend to be the cabin manager and say, oh, yeah, I've got smoke back here and all that sort of stuff. So it's very, very real. And what they do, you've got to, it, really, it's kind of sort of, they're watching to how you organise the whole event and how you, um, you know, organise and arrange your workload. You don't get overloaded, and um, you take enough time to do things properly and get the aircraft back on the ground safely. And of course, yeah, they can pile it on. They can pile on the pressure, but you, it's, it's all part of, uh, you know, when they pile on the pressure in real life, 
as well, you have to recognise that and you have to buy yourself more time. So it's a very, very good tool in that respect. Um, so I think they're more proactive now in the training than they were, whereby um, they, they, uh, they, they know the areas that they need to. Sure. They have a, so much monitoring now. They know what's going on in the airline and they'll focus the training to suit that. Uh, and given that the airlines have changed a lot since you started, would you still recommend someone getting into this, this business as a career? Absolutely, yeah. It's a fantastic career. And um, if, you, if you're lucky enough to get the right company, um, it's, it's not really a job. It's a way of life. I mean, you just, I just like playing with toys, really. You know, and the view is fantastic. It really is great. Um, I thoroughly recommend it. Um, I mean, there are one or two airlines out there where you have to work a little bit harder than the rest. But uh, if you're lucky enough, to get them with a good crowd, I would recommend it. It's a long, tough road, but the nice thing is when you embark down that road uh, and you, you, you know, you know what you want in life. You know, it's enjoyable, isn't it? You know, I mean, we all fork out loads of money. I remember doing it myself, but I thought this is what I want to do, and you don't mind doing it. Then, you know, it's nothing worse than being in a job, wishing you were up there. You know, I'd say to most people, go for it. If you're determined enough, you will do it and you will succeed. So, I think my recommendation is get out there and do it. Yeah. Okay, and before we finish, Guy, have you got any funny stories? You must have a lot of funny stories oh, being stories. an airline pilot. Well, uh, I've got lots of rude ones, but I don't, I don't think they'd be very good on the podcast. But um, um, in terms of general stories, we were saying earlier, you know, that, that I remember the old Delta Airways advert I saw of this sort of grey-haired, steely-eyed pilot with his gold braid on it. said, old pilots have no stories. But, uh, no, I like the, the story the other day of a mate of mine. He was our building in the States uh, on, a, on a 172 Cessna somewhere out in Texas. And uh, I mean, there's it, so much space. It landed this huge airfield, and uh, couldn't find where the apron was. So he asked for uh, guidance. He said, uh, "Oh yeah, Roger, follow the yellow car." So he's following this yellow car, and uh, he's doing about 20 knots. Next to me, he's doing about 30 knots, going faster and faster. The car's going flipping it round one corner, almost on two wheels. Now the other corner, he's doing about 45 knots now, about to get airborne. Suddenly, this barrier goes up, and he followed the wrong yellow car, and it was this <laughs> yellow car chap going home for his lunch. So it felt right, nana. But no, I mean, flying in America is great. It's quite interesting. The, the Americans, um, I don't think, you know, you hear them on the radio coming off the Atlantic, and um, they're always chatting on the on the air-to-air -air frequency about the baseball scores and so on. And then they get into a few difficulties when they end up going into French airspace, because I don't know about you, but the Americans don't seem to be very good at mastering the, the language of French. You know, <laughs> on the, they, they can't speak it too well. I hope nobody's listening to America in the podcast, but... Um, oh no, no. Uh, but um, there were, I had this one guy, American, checking in. Uh, it's American uh, two nine or just checking in there with breast control. Uh, Roger, American two nine. Uh, uh, maintain flight level three seven zero and proceed to position camper. Uh, say, could you uh, say again that position, please? Uh, oui, we oui, proceed to position camper. Uh, bit of a pause and right. Say, could you uh, could you spell that so we could put it in our box here? Uh, Roger, it is Quebec uh, uniform, India Mike, Papa Echo Romeo. Ah, you mean Quimper. Yeah. Yeah, we, we know what that is. Yeah. So a little bit of trouble with the uh, translation there. But no, you do hear some, some funny things. And uh, yeah, there's some lots of stories, but I'm afraid they're too rude to tell you on there. But uh, maybe that's, that's for a few beers in the pub, I think. Okay, <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Guy for that interview. A fascinating insight into the world of commercial aviation. Just a shame he couldn't share some of those more X-rated airline stories with us. One of my first recollections of flying is from when I was maybe 10 years old and going on holiday. And that was flying in a Danair Comet to Tenerife. 
and that probably gives you an idea of uh, exactly how old I am. Perhaps the most magical thing for me at that age was flying through the blanket of grey cloud into bright blue skies. Uh, the sun was shining on a brilliant wide, uh, white cloudscape beneath. Uh, off mic, Guy describes how he loves to throttle back when he's taking off uh, and flies plane up through the clouds and then powers up just as he emerges on top of the fluffy stuff, skimming through the cloud tops. I'm sure you never get bored with that sort of thing and uh, what a lucky bloke he is getting to do that every day of his job. Well, that's it for episode 15. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can email me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. That's steve at flyingpodcast, all one word, .co.uk. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon.